Hello, greetings, people of Earth. I come in peace. Hello. <laughs> uh, welcome to uh, the Ask Abhijit show. Today we are talking about science. A very nice, non-controversial topic. <laughs> no geopolitics, no history, just science. So let's see who all is here with us. I can see Zaina, Samarth, Tejas, Siddharth, Shruti, Srushti, Shivansh, Nit, Nishit, Bikram, Ganga Singh, Crazy Brain, uh, Alpha, Nandish, Chiching, Cupcake, Priyanshi, Parag, SJRIKK, Dongar Singh Chauhan, Vijay Vakela, Vihan Shergil, Kumwar, Shubham, Vladimir Adityanath, Ganga Singh, Bikram Ghosh, Animish, Shweta, Arushi, Alpha, Kiran, Darshan, Sagar, Rocky, Nirav, and a whole lot of people. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. So let us go into the questions. I have, as always, picked up a bunch of questions that you've asked. And I will endeavor to answer as many of them as possible. So let us begin with the questions. And let's begin with this one. So Swapnil says, is terraforming the Sahara Desert or Australia possible? for making a place habitable or would it disrupt weather and climatic patterns around the world? Terraforming the Sahara Desert or Australia. See, the Earth is a single system. The atmosphere, the, the land, the oceans, it's all tied together in a, well, it's all, it's all uh, everything is interrelated. So if you change one aspect of any of these things, everything else will uh, kind of react to that. So if you say you want to uh, make the Sahara Desert lush green again, it's possible. It can be done with uh, with uh, engineering projects and all. You dig, uh, you create canals that bring in water from, from somewhere else, possibly, uh, or or some other means of doing it. So yeah, you could possibly do it over a period of time, maybe fifty years or so, because these uh, projects would take time. So it would certainly make the place more habitable. You could do it in the Australian outback. Australia is a very dry, arid place, most of it, the entire continent. It's possible to do that. It would certainly change the weather and climate patterns around the world because it's all interrelated. Uh, so certainly it's possible, but it would definitely change things around. Now, in the past, we know that the Sahara Desert was lush green. Uh, maybe 100,000 or so years ago, or maybe before that. There have been these uh, cyclical patterns in the history of the Earth in which uh, there are times when there are this cold cold weather, the Ice Age and all that. There are times of uh, dry climate in the Sahara like we see now. And there are times when there is much more rainfall and uh, places are more lush green. So it's been there. But if you change this, you will certainly see the entire world's weather change and the patterns change. The monsoon may change in India, depending on various factors. So it would certainly change. It would not disrupt weather and climate. It would change weather and climate if you make such uh, large-scale changes in the uh, geography of the Earth. Right? Okay. The next question is about climate change. Climate change is a very uh, uh, important thing. So... For 30 to 40 years down, down the line, what are the major changes that are going to happen to the Earth's climate? What will be the consequences? And uh, something, geopolitical game going on. See, climate change is a thing. There's no doubt about it. It's always been around. Climate change is something that you cannot really question. It's there. 
So what's going to happen in the next 30, 40 years? We know that the amount of uh, carbon particulate matter in the atmosphere is increasing. It's it, it, uh, maybe an all-time high or something. I don't have the statistics. You can look it up. Um, so what that does is that it uh, intensifies the global warming. It causes this greenhouse, greenhouse effect. And uh, it's making our climate warmer. I believe in the next 100 or so years, we are projected to have a rise, an increase in the average global temperature by maybe 2% or so, which is significant. 2% may look a little very small, but uh, in the global context, it's quite uh, quite high. It will uh, cause uh, a lot of ice to melt in the polar regions, more or mostly. Antarctica, the Arctic region, uh, in the north, near the North Pole. And you're already witnessing this. You're seeing this happen. Now, climate change has always been a thing. It's always been around for millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. Uh, if you look at the entire geological history of the planet, it's been a constant story of climate change. Even in India, seven, eight thousand years ago, the Indian uh, monsoon was much more intense. There used to be much more rainfall about eight thousand years ago. And then about eight or so thousand years ago, six thousand BC onwards, the uh, monsoon started declining monotonically, and today we we receive far less rainfall than we used to receive eight thousand years ago, and that caused a lot of changes in India. The an entire river disappeared, right, and so on. So these things have always been part of our history, but right now there is a significant man-made component to the climate change. And because of that, we are witnessing global warming. So in 30, 40, 50 years, we're going to have an increase in the global temperatures, uh, average temperature. So let's say you are in a place where the average temperature today is 25 degrees throughout the year. If you average the temperatures throughout the year, you get an average of 25 degrees. Maybe in 40, 50 years, it may be 26 degrees, right? That sort of thing. So you're going to have these changes. The ocean levels will rise as the ice melts in the, in the polar regions. and in 50, 50 or years or 100 years, many of the low-lying areas, the coastal regions in various parts of the world could kind of go underwater. Uh, you may have an increase in the average uh, uh, water levels, sea levels worldwide, maybe by, I don't know how much it's exactly going to be, a foot, two feet. That's, that's a lot, actually. So many low-lying island nations could disappear. There are some islands, island nations in the South Pacific region, small island nations that could be in trouble. The Maldives could disappear. Bangladesh could have a lot of trouble. And people are saying that India should <laughs> absorb uh, the Bangladeshi population that will be affected by this. So all of these things are going to happen. We're going to see this. Even in India, in various coastal cities, Kolkata, Mumbai, uh, Chennai, etc. You could see some, some consequences of this uh, rise in the sea level. So if you're planning to buy property somewhere in one of these metropolitan cities, you may want to buy it on higher ground uh, at some distance from the sea coast, perhaps. So that's that's the kind of thing we're going to witness. It's going to happen. It's happening. It's, it's a process that's already in motion. Uh, with the geopolitical game going on, is it stoppable? You can't stop it. It's uh, what we can do is we can try and prevent further change. We can try and slow down the, the pace of change. We can try and ensure that we don't dump more 
pollution, more carbon into the atmosphere. We can try and reduce the carbon output, the carbon footprint of every country and so on. That's what we can do. But what's already going on cannot be stopped. It's going to happen. It's going to happen anyway. Uh, so it's it's almost impossible to stop this because every nation is competing with each other. There are countries that have been destroyed over the past 500 years, 500 years by colonialism. They want to rise again. And the only way to rise again is through industrialization. Industrialization has a carbon footprint. What can you do about it? You can't ask the countries, the West cannot ask the countries it has destroyed in the past 500 years to stop developing. It just won't work. So it's just a natural consequence of development and development is required. We have such a huge population. So there's a whole range of factors in this. But it's going to happen. It's happening. Okay, Tejas asks, is it possible that Jupiter has eaten up other planets, as some latest study suggests. Right. So what is Jupiter? Uh, I hope you all know the solar system, what it's like. Can you name the planets? Can you name the planets starting from the sun onwards? So let me tell you, we have the sun, then we have Mercury, Venus, then the Earth, then you have Mars, then you have the asteroid belt, then you have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, then you have further uh, uh there's a whole bunch of planets called the trans, uh, uh, not planets, even Pluto is no longer classified as a planet, and so on. Then you have the uh, objects that are beyond Pluto, the minor planets, the planetesimals, you have the Oort cloud, comets, comets, and much more. The Trojan asteroids, uh, various other asteroids, and so on. So, we're talking about Jupiter. So, Jupiter is uh, the largest planet in the solar system. It's also believed to be the, it, it, it is also most likely the oldest planet in the solar system. It's the first large, first overall planet that formed out of the proto, uh, excuse me, proto, proto stellar uh, uh, gas cloud, right? From the primordial solar system. Uh, so uh, the solar system's age is about 4.57 billion years. Yeah. And Jupiter is, is believed to have formed the solid core of Jupiter is believed to have formed about between 1 million years and 5 million years after the start of the solar system's history. So it's the oldest planet that we know of. Earth, so, so, so Jupiter is about 4.5 billion years old. The Earth is also about that old, but slightly younger than that. And as we know, Jupiter is about 320 times the mass of the Earth. It is 1,000th the mass of the sun. So that's about Jupiter. So uh, is it possible that Jupiter has eaten up other planets? It is entirely possible. See, the old, the early solar system was a very dynamic place. There was a lot of chaos. There were, the, It's possible there were certain planets called super-Earths that were formed in the, possibly in the inner solar system. Inner solar system means between the orbit of uh between the sun and the orbit of present-day orbit of Jupiter. It's present that certain very large rocky planets were formed in the early solar system uh, in this period, right? And because of the very dynamic nature of the solar system at that time, there would have been collisions between these super-Earth-like planets, which possibly uh, gave rise to the asteroid belt that we witnessed between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter. It's also possible that Jupiter was earlier formed. When it was formed, it was at a different location, at a different distance away from the solar from the sun, maybe much further outwards. And then because of the gravitational dynamics, it came inwards and it shepherded certain planets and it gave rise to the order that we see today. So it is certainly almost 
almost 99.9% probable it has eaten up, swallowed up ancient planets in the past. And certainly lots of debris, rocky debris, etc. It has definitely done that. We have witnessed uh, about 20 or so years ago, maybe before that, the uh, the crash of the of the comet Shoemaker-Levy into Jupiter. The or the gravity of the planet first tore the, the shredded the comet into multiple pieces, and then those pieces eventually ended up hitting the planet Jupiter. And this was witnessed. The, we can you can see photographs of that available online. And so it swallowed up that comet. In the past, there would have been lots of events like that. Even entire planets would have possibly been swallowed up by Jupiter. So I don't know which study you're referring to, but it is definitely very likely that this happened. Even Saturn would have swallowed up certain planets. It's also quite likely that Earth itself in its uh, early phase was hit by, we know that there was a massive bombardment, the so-called Hadean period. But it's quite likely that uh, the Earth itself was hit by a large planet in the very ancient past, maybe about, about four and a half, 4.3, 4.4 billion years before today. And that collision most likely possibly gave rise to the moon. Right? So yeah, it's a very interesting history. We don't know a lot about it, but depending on what we see today, we can kind of reconstruct the earlier, older history of the solar system. So yes, it is quite possible that Jupiter has eaten up, like you say, <laughs> other planets in the past. Okay, Bakhanani says, will humanity ever get success in finding alien life at all? Do aliens exist? If they do, can we ever reach them or get a glimpse of them? Are we really alone in the universe? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> See, it's possible that we may discover alien life next weekend, next week. It's possible. It's also possible that we may never ever find aliens, <clears throat> any trace of alien life. Both possibilities are, I would say, equally likely. Do I believe aliens exist? I am pretty sure they, that aliens exist. I'm pretty sure that life exists in other places, possibly in our own solar system. There could be life in the microbial form or something. Maybe on, on Mars, perhaps, buried in, under the soil. Maybe on Europa, maybe on Titan, maybe somewhere else. It's quite possible. Um, so... Microbial life could exist right now in our solar system, uh, beyond the Earth. When we talk about intelligent life, if you just see the sheer number of stars, galaxies, planets that you have, it's it's uh, almost Im impossible to imagine that uh, with uh, 10 raised to 23 or 24 stars in the visible universe. I mean, is it? I mean, if if we are the only place where life exists. That, that doesn't make any sense. So I am personally quite sure that life exists in other places, maybe even intelligent life. Most likely, there would be other civilizations that could be just as intelligent or more intelligent, more advanced, more evolved than us. But for some reason, we are not able to detect them. We have never been able to detect, detect them in recorded history from whatever we know. There is no unambiguous evidence that we have found aliens in the past. Some people say that there are certain uh, carvings on pyramids or rocks or whatever that seem to depict alien visitations. Well, it's not unambiguous evidence. It seems to look like uh, something that resembles a spacecraft or somebody or a, hum or, or a figure of a human being or something that seems to wear a kind of helmet that you would imagine in science fiction movies. But that is not unambiguous evidence. So, uh, 
so the question is why are we not able to detect alien life if it is if, if it should be so uh, widespread and common in the universe well maybe we are not evolved enough maybe we are too primitive we may think that we all think that we are so advanced and all in the modern world we have all this technology and all that but most likely we are still a very primitive species right think about it this way let's say you have a petri dish in which you have a colony of bacteria okay it's in a lab it's sitting in a lab scientists are studying this colony of bacteria a few million bacteria in a petri dish a dish which is sealed and the the colony of bacteria is let's say 300 generations old so bacteria that divide they reproduce they die off and their descendants again do the same thing it goes on and on and let's say this uh, colony of bacteria is let's say 1000 generations old yeah so these bacteria they're sitting in there and they're talking to each other each other they are wondering do other life forms exist yeah they are having this discussion among each other this bacteria that we have been living here for a thousand generations at least our history is very ancient and we have never found evidence of alien life they are talking to each other and just outside what they can perceive there are scientists human scientists who are studying them through the microscope so the bacteria don't have the sensory apparatus that is needed to see the scientists the bacteria are so small the scientists are so far away relatively compared to them so even though the scientists are observing the bacteria the bacteria have no idea that they are being observed so maybe we are also in a way those bacteria and maybe there's somebody observing us when we are simply not aware of it we know that 95% of the universe is unknown to us it's dark dark matter dark energy we don't have the least idea of what these things are so maybe there's something going on out there that we are not aware of and they they know we are here and they may be studying us for a few thousand generations and we just simply not aware of it yeah the time scales that we live in 100 years 70 years it must be just a fraction of a second to maybe to this hypothetical alien species so that is entirely possible so maybe it's all out there but we simply not able to see it because we are too primitive and our senses are too limited entirely possible so so i don't have definitive answers are we alone in the universe i don't know i don't think so i don't think so can we ever reach them get a glimpse of them who knows <laughs> so let's see how it goes hopefully we will find something and hopefully that will not be too dangerous yeah right Okay dark lord the dark lord is here all right is time travel really possible can you explain the grandfather paradox and jaspreet bhai says according what according to theoretical physicists are the possible ways to travel back in time other than wormhole concept in which there's a requirement of cosmic strings and negative mass and negative energy theoretically of course can you please share some of the hypotheses about traveling back in time is there any solution to paradoxes such as the grandfather paradox the bootstrap paradox etc okay what is the grandfather paradox uh, imagine a scenario a, a hypothetical scenario in which you can go back in time let's say you go back in time 80 years and then you you discover a person you you meet various people back in time 80 years back in time and you meet a person you get into some kind of argument with that person you end up killing the person yeah and just by chance by 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 terrible chance that person happens to be your grandfather yeah so you go back in time you for whatever reason end up killing your own grandfather then how is it that you exist that causes 
that that breaks causality there is a causal chain in the world i always keep talking about the causal chain the cause effect uh, relationship everything that exists today exists because of things that happened in the past the causal chain cause and effect cause and effect goes back millions billions billions of years it goes back 13.7 billion years the cause and effect chain which is the the timeline of the big bang right so if you go back in time if time if time travel were possible if it were possible to go back in time you go back in time you kill your own grandfather then how the hell do you exist it makes no sense and yet there it is so that kind of tells you that there is a there is that the causal structure of of the universe breaks down if try if time travel happens right then there is something called uh, like jaspreet says the bootstrap paradox that's another paradox let's say i'm sitting here now i have been studying physics my entire life i know relativity the special theory of relativity the general theory of relativity now who came up with the, with relativity it was albert einstein he published the special theory in 1905 and the general theory of relativity in 1915 i know these theories because i've studied them right i know the equations i have actually done the work not just reading uh, popular science books and magazines so let's say i travel back in time yeah i travel back in time i go back to 1904 one year before einstein published these theories uh, the first theory so i go back in time a year before or let's say 5 years before einstein published relativity i meet einstein and i teach him relativity i teach him the entire math all the equations everything i give him the entire theory that he eventually ends up publishing and then he goes ahead and publishes it because he learned it from me but i learned it from him but he learned it from me so who came up with the theory first i go back in time and teach it to him but i learned it from him with himself so who's the originator of the theory once again the causal structure of the universe gets messed up so that is the bootstrap paradox there are multiple versions of this you can imagine all kinds of scenarios in which this thing gets messed up the bootstrap paradox and all that uh right so that's that's what it is so the question then is uh is time travel really possible that that's a real question so general relativity permits some exact solutions that allow for time travel and some of these exact uh, solutions they describe what is known as they describe universes that contain what's known as closed time like curves these are world lines that lead back to the same point in space time not only in time in space but in time in time as well so these are called closed time like curves so a, a closed time like curve it's a world line of a material particle in space time so this world line is closed it it keeps it returns to its starting point so if a particle or a, or a person let's say is inside that you go back <laughs> it's like a loop you can you can travel back in time so in this you can travel backwards in time but not forwards so that's called a causal loop and uh, even when it comes to wormholes a wormhole what's a wormhole a wormhole is like well it looks like a black hole from the outside but it's a, it's a tunnel with two mouths and a throat that connects the two mouths so let's say you have a wormhole which is which is open for whatever reason first of all wormhole solutions are very uh wormholes want to snapshot snapshot it's almost impossible to keep it open unless you have something called exotic material like something with a negative mass 
we have never seen any material that has negative mass right but let's say such a thing it, it's hy- hypothetically theoretically possible so if you have something like that you can keep the wormhole open or if you have something called a cosmic string which is a defect in the structure of space time hypothetical again if you have these things you could keep a wormhole open and you could that could then become a traversable wormhole so let's say you have a wormhole with one mouth in one place the other mouth far, far away in space time and the other mouth is traveling at relativistic velocity so if you go from one point from one opening and you end up at the other you may end up going backwards in time so these are possible scenarios in which you could actually travel backwards in time so that's what i can offer you so these are uh, possible ways in which hypothetically theoretically you could possibly go back in time but the question is does it violate causality it could possibly violate causality that we just uh, spoke of the grandfather paradox the bootstrap paradox and so on if it were possible secondly it could even violate the second law of thermodynamics entropy what does the second law of thermodynamics say well one of the ways of putting it is that systems always flow from a state of order to a state of disorder entropy always increases so an object that's trapped within a, ta- uh, a time loop or any information that is trapped within a time loop would continue to age and eventually disintegrate but does it work that way so these are the the the, the questions the problems that exist and we still don't have the uh, actual answers so that is where we are so there is something about time travel it's not entirely verboten there are theoretical solutions that would allow for possibly for time travel but uh, there are, but there are many unanswered questions about causality about the second law of thermodynamics and all that right so that's a little bit about it very interesting subject very fascinating subject and uh, a lot of theoretical research is going on about this as we speak about the causal structure of the universe does it violate causality uh, could there be an event horizon within within a wormhole possibly that would kind of preclude that would kind of make it uh, possible to travel without violating causality all kinds of uh, such uh, research is being done and it's it's a work in progress okay the question is this is a question about okay what is the world's first liquid mirror telescope dis- developed in india and how would it be useful for scientific discoveries right so i think it's being a, it's been installed at the devasthal observatory let's take a look at that i typically don't bring out the map in uh, science episodes but let's do it for a change let's bring out the map let me open the map first and we will go and try and find this observatory where's the map here's the map come on map okay so let's devasthal observatory it's in northern india it's in the himalayas let's see what it brings us okay let's bring in okay so this is the devasthal observatory where is it exactly located within india as you can see it's in northern india um yeah that would give you the context it's west of the nepal india border and south of the india tibet border so that's where it is it's high in the himalayas it's in a mountainous forested region and we have the 
ILMT, the International Liquid Mirror Telescope, over here. So that's where it is. That answers where it is. Now, what is this thing, right? So it's not the world's first liquid mirror telescope. There have been liquid mirror telescopes in the past. It's the largest that exists as of today. And it's not been developed in India. It's uh, been developed by a consortium of, I think, three nations, India, Belgium, Canada, as far as I can recall. So you can look up the details. Now, what is this? So in a telescope, you typically have a lens or a mirror. In large telescopes, you have reflective mirrors. And these are parabolic mirrors, typically. Yeah. And uh, so what you do is you take a big piece of glass, you 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 shape it in that in in the uh, in the proper shape, the parabolic shape. Then you have to apply um, a coating of some kind of reflective material, typically some sort of metal. It's a long, involved process. It costs a lot of money, right? So there, in this Devasthal Observatory itself, there is another telescope, which cost about twenty million dollars to make, and this new telescope, the Liquid Mirror Telescope, costs about one tenth of that to make. So in a liquid mirror telescope, what you find, what you have is that you have a liquid metal, typically mercury, that is set spinning, and when you do that, it uh, it it takes on the shape that's the the, the parabolic the parabolic shape that you want in a telescope. So uh, and it's it's put in a cushion of air or something, some sort of, some sort of technological uh, thing is there, and the mirror the the liquid metal. The mercury becomes it assumes that parabolic shape, and then it can be used as a very good mirror for a telescope. The thing about a liquid mirror telescope is that you cannot, uh, you can't maneuver it. You can't make it point to a certain place in space in in the sky. It just you can just place it on the ground or or wherever it is installed. It just looks upwards. It looks up into a into whatever is right above it. So that single patch in the sky. So there are pros and cons of this. The pro is that it it will focus on one location in the sky, and you can do it night after night and add up the images to bring out very sharp and detailed images. So that's one thing. But you can't maneuver it and make it point at some other desired location in space. So it serves a certain purpose, and it is a, it's a good technology. Uh, so it's the world's largest liquid mirror telescope, and that's what we have right now. I think it's gone operational recently. And it's going to be a prototype for hopefully larger telescopes that will be made in the future. So, in a liquid mirror telescope, there are certain restrictions. You can't make it larger than a certain size. I think the one that we have in uh, Devasthal is about. It has a diameter of about four meters, if I'm not mistaken. Look it up. I think you try to make the telescope bigger than let's say 7 8 meters they're going to there's going to be problems because of the rotation of the earth there is something called a coriolis force that will distort the mirror and then you will not get proper images the images will be distorted so one solution is to go to the moon which has which is much smaller and therefore this effect will not really constrain us so you could make a much larger mirror and install it on the moon of course the problem is how to take it there you know so in the future, one could be able to do that with large enough rockets, like what SpaceX is developing and all. So it could happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And you could have a mirror on the dark side of the moon, let's say, the, the, the far side of the moon. And uh, that could possibly give us very interesting astronomical data. So that is what it is. And that's what it's used for. It's used for looking at the night sky, a certain patch of the night sky that is right above it. And it can give very nice detailed images. 
So that's about the liquid mirror telescope in the Devasthal Observatory, North India. The next question is by Lokesh. In the context of your explanation in the 108th session, is mathematics pseudoscience or not scientific because it is definitive? If not, what does testability and falsifiability mean in mathematics? Right, so there is a question. That's a question. So, is mathematics pseudoscience because apparently there's no testability? So let's say I... I make a claim, a mathematical claim. I say that 1 plus 1 is equal to 3. Can it be tested? Let's test it. This is 1. This is 1 pen. And I say that 1 plus 1 1 equal to 3, right? Here's another pen. What do you see? I see two pens. So my hypothesis that 1 plus 1 equal to 3 has been tested and falsified. So mathematics is testable. Mathematics is definitely falsifiable. And mathematics is all about proofs, right? So we had the Pythagorean theorem, the Pythagorean theorem, the triples, uh, which you find in the Bodhiyana, Sulba Shulba Sutras, uh, even the Babylonians were aware of it. So that is something you can test. And if you if you give a instead of saying that a squared plus b squared is equal to c squared, you say that a squared plus b squared is equal to c cubed. You can test it that out, and you can show that that is incorrect. It's not c cubed; it's c squared. You can test it out, and you can even prove or disprove theorems using logic, using the mathematical uh, process. Entire proofs are constructed. So certain proofs take centuries. Take Fermat's last theorem, for instance. It was put forth by Pierre de Fermat in 1637, I think, in the 17th century. So it is not something that people started believing. It had to be proven. This guy, the mathematician Fermat, he made a certain claim in one of his uh, notebooks or whatever. And then people were wondering whether this claim is true or not. And therefore, it had to be proven or disproven. And that process lasted more than three centuries. The, the attempt, the quest for a proof of this theorem. It's only in 1995 that the British mathematician Andrew Wiles was able to finally give a definitive proof that this theorem is correct. right? And this entire process of trying to prove this theorem led to the development of algebraic number theory in the 19th century and the 20th century. So you don't believe things blindly in mathematics. You have to prove it. Any claim, any mathematical claim that is made, any conjecture that's made, the Riemann conjecture or whatever, it has to be proven. Until it is proven, it is not, nobody believes it. It's something people are trying to prove or disprove. So you have to definitively prove that it's correct, that it stands, or you have to definitely, definitively, definitively prove mathematically that it is incorrect. So this is pure science. There is nothing pseudoscientific about mathematics. It is 100% testable and falsifiable. All right? So mathematics is the purest of all the sciences. Without mathematics, there's no other science. Without mathematics, there is no physics because mathematics is the language of physics. Without physics, there's no chemistry. Without chemistry, there's no biology and so on and so forth. So I hope that answers this question. The next question is by Akash. Which side are you on? Will AI, artificial intelligence, destroy humanity, as Elon Musk and a few other notable people say? Or 
AI is extremely useful and can speed up the advancement of human technology beyond far beyond anyone's imagination you know both scenarios are possible possible so the question is which one is more probable see ai is a technology it's it's a certain uh, class of technologies in which you have uh, neural networks quantum neural computing all kinds of things which all are now classified under the big umbrella of ai so ai is a tool a stick is a tool you can use it for good purposes and for bad purposes yeah a uh, nuclear energy is a tool it's a technology it's a tool you can use it to power the entire world and 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 get rid of all the polluting technologies you can also use it to destroy the planet with nuclear weapons all technologies are merely tools it all depends on how they are used you can use them for good purposes as well as bad purposes you can use them for good you can use them for harm now ai can certainly transform the world and and make the world a better place you can use uh, machine learning to decrypt ancient uh, languages that are yet uh, ancient scripts that nobody has been able to decipher thus far you can use ai machine learning algorithms etc to develop new drug molecules to solve to to cure cancer and what not you can do all kinds of good using ai you can use ai to monitor traffic and uh, and uh, govern the way the traffic lights change and that can give you a better experience in navigating the cities for instance and so much more but ai can also be used for all kinds of bad purposes for harm it can be used to enslave humanity essentially using social media algorithms using the dopamine releasing algorithms of likes and dislikes and shares and all that uh so it has all kinds of uses but the the question is who controls the ai all the ai technologies that are currently being developed are mostly being being developed in certain countries yeah and even in those countries let's let's take the united states for instance and china let's take two examples there are more examples for sure let's take two examples in china who's developing the uh, cutting edge ai technologies it's the chinese government and the chinese military that's doing it now when the government and the military is doing something it has a certain purpose a military purpose a purpose that's about expanding your sphere of influence at the expense of the other nations in the us the us military and the government are for sure developing ai and certain very large corporations are developing ais ai technologies so it's typically the government the military and silicon valley now they will do it for in order to benefit themselves the large corporations will do it to to get even larger to to make more money to make more to expand their revenues and the number of people who they influence and so on so if it is used for good purposes it can transform the world but if it is used for making money and expanding your military influence your military footprint your geostrategic footprint it's going to end up causing way more trouble than we can imagine right so on balance i would be on the side of elon musk that we need to be very 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 careful about ai it is very useful but it can destroy the destroy humanity it can it can possibly end up enslaving humanity and ai doesn't have to become conscious to destroy humanity ai doesn't have to be become sentient self aware like they show in the terminator movies no 
AI is already, it can do tasks at a level that's unimaginable for a human brain. So if you automate that and if you have human beings controlling that, that gives those human beings almost unlimited power. And it's always for making more money and you could call it enslavement. In the future, you could have actual enslavement without the enslaved people realizing they are enslaved. Like in the Matrix movies and so on. So on balance, considering the the patterns of human history that I've been studying, we see some things over and over and over again. As new technologies emerge, they are always first used for military purposes, for the purpose of gaining more control, more power, and winning wars, waging wars. It's always that way. It's only later that those technologies uh, produce spin-offs that are used in the civilian domain. So whatever we see of AI, there is a, there is a whole different AI that is not visible to us. That's being that's about 20 or 30 years beyond what we can imagine. It's already that far ahead. And that is right now being developed by various militaries in the world. So eventually, if this continues like this, it could end up uh, enslaving humanity or possibly destroying humanity. Uh, eventually, these AI systems, even if they are not sentient and self-aware, they could still, if you give, give them the wrong kind of decision-making ability, they could say that let's optimize everything, get rid of the human connection completely. And, uh, you know, who knows what could happen? So I am on the side of Elon Musk and whichever other notable people there are, that it is a very dangerous development for us. And uh, there needs to be restrictions and controls and checks and balances on the power that AI has and essentially the people who have who are developing AI have. Yeah. Krishna Saraf says, have humans stopped natural selection evolution and will overpopulation be our end? Okay, so lots of people ask me this question. Have we stopped evolving? Have humans stopped evolving? No, we have not stopped evolving. But we have to understand the time scales on which evolution is visible. Human beings, we, we our species is called Homo sapiens, right? If you go back 250,000 years before today, you find skeletons, ancient skeletons of Homo sapiens in, in various parts of Africa, typically, two and a half lakh years before today. Those skeletons of Homo sapiens are anatomically and physically identical to ours. So those are called anatomically modern human beings. And that goes back about two and a half lakh, two and two point five lakh years before today. So, in a quarter of a million years, we have not evolved noticeably. We are more or less the same. You go back a half million years, you will see significant changes. You go back a million years, you will see even more changes. You go back three million years, our ancestors were the same as the ancestors of the chimpanzees. You go back five million years ago, even the gorillas become well, five or six million years before today, our ancestors and the chimpanzees' ancestors and the gorillas' ancestors were the same. Right? So evolution happens over very long time scales. You don't evolve in 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years or 100,000 years. Typically, it, the evolution, the, the process of evolution and the effects of evolution are visible over very long time scales, lakhs of years, hundreds of thousands of years, quarter of million years, maybe more. So we are evolving. We are certainly evolving, but we will not become a different species in the next 100,000 years. Unless we mess up our genetics with uh, various <laughs> gene editing and other uh, experiments. right? So we have not stopped evolving. Evolution is still happening, but it's not visible. 
the effects are not visible that take that takes a very long time to become apparent uh the second question is will, will overpopulation be our end i don't think so right now all the birth rates the fertility rates in most of the countries in the world are declining in japan it's way be- below replacement rate in russia it's below replacement below the replacement rate the replacement fertility rate is 2.1 children per woman that's what that's what i think it is in india it's now 2 so we are below replacement in india as well overall overall right uh in all the industrialized nations in western europe etc everywhere in turkey in iran you have populations that have uh, the entire national population that has fallen below the replacement rate and then there are new viruses etc that are emerging uh we we are done with the previous one now it seems there's a new one coming up so it looks like this is the decade of the virus and they're going to keep keep on coming up with various uh, incentives for human beings to stay locked down and under lock and chain and that sort of thing so i don't know so i don't think we are going to uh end up going far beyond the current population of the world yeah in the very low income nations the population is still rising in pakistan i think the the country is way above replacement rate it's a very backward country it's a very poor country it's a very uh, the literacy rate is very low and typically there's a inverse correlation between literacy rate and the fertility rate the higher the uh, literacy percentage of a nation the lower is the rate of fertility in pakistan it's very low and i think the uh, number of children per woman is about 4 or pl- more than 4 but overall if you look at the entire planet the trend is downwards so if this trend continues we may even have a population crash in the next 100 years so let's see how that goes but i don't it doesn't look like overpopulation will be our end hopefully there's no end hopefully we go on for the next few thousand years and uh, you know good good future for humanity i hope so Swapnil says is it you know it is now possible to bring extinct animals back through gene editing techniques however could there be a case wherein an animal that might be brought back from extinction might do may do more harm to the earth than good if yes was it worth it to have wiped out those animals in the past by humans from our planet in the first place okay it is now possible so the so the assumption that is made here the assertion that's made here is that it's now possible to bring extinct animals back through gene editing techniques uh, i'm not sure it's still possible we are we are yet at that stage i can't think of a single extinct animal that has been brought back thus far thus far we do have uh, gene editing techniques the the technology is is getting better every few years we have something called crispr that you can use to uh, edit individual genes in your inside a genome um and we do have uh, so we could and we we do have the technique of cloning so we have cloned various animals uh, like dolly the dolly the sheep and various other species perhaps i hope it's not been been done to humans because that would be weird and unethical most likely so yeah we have all this entire assortment of gene editing etc techniques and i would say theoretically it would be possible to bring back let's say a mammoth back to life a mammoth is an extinct species of of elephant and that species went extinct about 10000 years before today 
So the mammoths coexisted with humans. It's it's not too long ago. It's just ten thousand years. It's from from an evolutionary perspective. It's yesterday. It's last evening, right? So, and we find uh, preserved mammoths all the time in the permafrost in Siberia, in North America. Just recently, I saw on Twitter somebody discovered a baby mammoth that was perfectly preserved in the ice. Of course, its DNA would be available. Yeah. Of course, it would be most likely possible to use the various uh, genetic techniques to 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 bring back, to give birth, to 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 fertilize an egg with that sort of uh, that sort of DNA, yeah, or take a fertilized egg, modify its its DNA profile, add the the mammoth genetics into it, and then implant that fertilized egg into a female elephant, and that female elephant would most likely give birth to a live mammoth, which would bring the species back from extinction. It is possible. Nobody's done it thus far. Uh, for the past 20-30 years, Japanese scientists had been investigating that. I am not sure how far that went, but I think it would be possible today. So if let's say we bring the mammoth back from extinction. Let's, we, let's say we bring the dodo back from extinction. These species lived until very recently. I don't think they would do any harm to the planet. Right? Uh, so certain species, if you bring them back from extinction, they would just fit into the world properly, as long as the, these are species that lived until reasonably recently. The mammoth is a good example, about 10,000 years. Let's say you find a way of bringing dinosaurs back to life, like in the Jurassic Park movies. That would be uh, that would be out of place in today's world, because the non-avian dinosaurs were wiped out they died out about 66 million years before today in the Chicxulub impact event. The avian dinosaurs survived. They are all around us. Uh, so let's say, you know, what's happened recently. I, I don't know why this news has all has fallen off everyone's radar. A few years ago, people discovered uh, a T-Rex bone, a femur, the thigh bone of a T-Rex. Uh, it was entombed, it was encased in rock. Yeah, it's like, I don't know how many million years old. It is definitely more than 66 million years old. And for some reason, the, the, that uh, rock broke. And what they discovered was tissue. You know, un, uh, it was liquid tissue with, with uh, uh, what looked like the remains of uh, blood vessels, even blood cells, etc. inside the T-Rex fossil, thigh bone, femur. Yeah. So if that survived all these millions of years, it it is possible that you may be able to extract some DNA out of it. Now that has been hushed up, it looks like. And it's I, there were multiple cases of this sort of thing happening. So it is possible that DNA could be extracted from such uh, fossils that still contain uh, intact or near intact dinosaur tissue, right? And then, even if some bits of the DNA are missing, you could. Uh, so the T the T Rex was a, was essentially a giant bird, right? The Tyrannosaurus Rex. Rex. It was a massive giant bird. Dinosaurs and birds are essentially the same thing. So you could use chicken DNA to fill in the gaps in the T Rex uh, genome, whatever the gaps, uh, whatever is missing, and then you could try and uh, recreate the species. It is possible that you may be able to. Possible, maybe in the next 10, 20 years, you may be able to do that. You do that, 
will that species that you are recreating will it fit back into the world like the mammoths would the mammoths lived until recently the di- the world the dinosaurs lived in no longer exists so that would possibly cause problems what would they eat where would they fit into the evolutionary uh, into the environmental food chain for instance right because they have been missing for 66 plus million years so certain species if you bring them back would possibly not fit into the present uh, ecological environmental scenario they could possibly do more harm than good there may be certain genetic aspects that would that could spread to other animals and cause problems you know if you look at the human genome there's a lot of viral dna in our genome and we don't know why it's there but it's there and similarly it's possible with dinosaurs and, and other species also there could be some viral components to their dna to the genome now could that cause problems if you bring it back and set it free in the environment possibly so one has to be very careful when you when one is playing god you you cannot start playing god and start bringing extinct species to life without considering it very carefully so that's what i have to say you bring back certain species like recently extinct species to to life again it should not cause too many problems hopefully but you bring back older species to life it could upset uh the ecological balance and cause problems all right this is by amruta could you please explain what exactly is the precession of the equinoxes and why does it need exactly 26000 years to complete also there are many geological evidences that some sort of extreme calamity happens every 26000 years like earthquakes floods earthquakes floods tsunamis is it related to the precession of the equinoxes okay what is the precession of the equinox the earth is a spheroidal planet you could approximate it to be a sphere yeah it's oblate it's squashed uh, in a certain way but it's it's nearly spherical you could approximate it with a sphere so and it's a spinning object right so it spins around a certain axis the axis is not straight up with respect to the plane of the solar system it's tilted right and this tilt is spinning so a picture is worth 10000 words let me show you a picture an image so that you get what i am saying instead of me going on forever so let's bring in the picture of that where is it here it is let me enlarge this a little bit so this is our planet the earth it is spinning around its axis and this axis is tilted with respect to the ecliptic plane right the plane of the solar system you could you could consider it to be that and there's a north pole and a south pole which is so you you, you can see what that is now let's take a look at another image so the axis of precession itself goes around in this manner and the north pole right now is pointed at this star called polaris but 13000 or so years ago it was pointed at a different star called vega right so 13000 years ago the north pole the, the polar star the pole star was vega not polaris today it is polaris and later it will be the star called demeb and alpha draconis and all so this phenomenon that you are seeing right here right right here is called the precession of the equinoxes right and this entire cycle what entire cycle from polaris to vega and back that takes about 26000 years ago uh, 26000 years one 
entire cycle. It's actually about 25,700 or so years. You can say it's about 26,000 years. So that is called the precession of the equinoxes. Hopefully that makes sense once you see it in, in that manner, the image, right? So that's just how it is. In certain other planets, I'm sure it would take a different amount of time. All planets have a certain, certain amount of tilt with respect to the plane of the solar system. And uh, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but in other planets, the planets, you would have a different amount of time that it takes for a for an entire cycle. So that's how it is. So that's why it, that, that's the amount of time it takes. Uh, there are geological evidences that some extreme calamity happens every 26,000 years. I'm not sure about that. You have cycles. There is something called the Milkanovich cycle. That is a climate change cycle that you can look up, right? Uh, there's another cycle or, or event that happens periodically in the earth, which is the reversal of the magnetic poles. So you have North Pole and South Pole. We also have magnetic poles in the earth, which are more or less aligned with the North Pole and South Pole. That also reverses in polarity every few, I don't know how, what the, what the time period is. You can look that up if you're interested. So there are multiple cycles that are, that are there, that play out again and again and again in our planet, on our planet. And you see uh, the events that are a consequence of that. So I am not sure if the precession of the equinoxes is, is re related to any earthquakes or floods or tsunamis, but uh, you have a variety of various uh, climatic and other cycles that the planet witnesses on a regular basis. Mohak says, I want to know, I want to ask what is meant by a light year. Okay, that's very simple. A light year is not a unit of time. It sounds like a year, right? Light year. It's not a unit of time. It's a unit of distance. So light travels at a certain speed, roughly 300,000 kilometers per second. That's the speed of light. 300,000 Kilometers per second. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Meters? Kilometers? Whatever it is. Look it up. Let me just... <laughs> speed of light. Speed of light. What is the speed of light? Meters per second. <laughs> it's 299,792,458 meters per second. So it's about 300,000 kilometers per second. Uh... Yeah, 300,000 300, kilometers per second. Okay, so, so that, is, that is the speed of light. In one second, it travels that distance. 300,000 or 3 lakh kilometers. Okay? In one second. So if you multiply that by 60, you, you will come up with the amount of distance light travels in a minute. You multiply that by 60, you will come with a bigger distance. It will give you a bigger distance. That's the amount of of, of distance light travels in an hour. Multiply that by 24, you will get the amount of distance light travels in a day. Multiply that by 365, you will get the amount of distance light travels in one year. And that distance, whatever it is, calculate it, is called a light year. So that is a unit of distance, not time. Right? So that, in short, is what a light year is. The amount of distance light travels in one year. That is a light year. And the closest star in our stellar neighborhood 
Proxima Centauri is roughly four light years away from here. So if you shine a beam of light, a torchlight in that direction, it'll take slightly more than four years for that, for that light to reach that star, Proxima Centauri. So that's what a light year is. Okay, Atom Heart Mother, a Pink Floyd, a Pink Floyd fan. The question is, yeah, Pink Floyd, great band. How far do you agree with the Big Bang Theory? Is it even possible for us to predict how the universe would have started, provided that billions of years ago, all physical laws could have been entirely different from the present ones? One question of mine would be, would be that, is there anything in the universe having speed of more than light? Let's, let's concentrate on the Big Bang. One question per person. <laughs> so, how far do I agree with the Big Bang Theory? It's not whether I agree or not. It makes sense. See, in science, in mathematics, in physics, you don't believe things. There is no belief. There's no, I agree with this, I don't agree with this. This is not politics. It's not about opinions. It's about data. It's about facts. It's about, it's about evidence. So let's, let's talk about the Big Bang Theory. How did physicists come up with the Big Bang Theory? It's not that some somebody. It's not like somebody dreamt it up and everybody said, "Okay, let's agree to this." It's not about consensus. How did this happen? So, in the 1920s, Edwin Hubble uh, came up with what's known as he what he discovered. What Edwin Hubble Hubble discovered is that all galaxies are moving away from us. Okay, so he did a lot of uh, meticulous calculations about, and how did he find out that galaxies are receding away from us? Because these galaxies are redshifted. When something goes further away because of the relativistic Doppler effect, the light that comes from that object is stretched out. When it's stretched out, it, it is shifted towards the red end of the spectrum. So there are certain elements that give up very characteristic wavelengths. You know what they are. When you find that, when you look for that, you will find that it is shifted towards the red end of the spectrum. And the more it is shifted, the further away that thing is going away from us. And the further the speed is, the velocity is. So not only are galaxies and other distant objects going away from us, they are the, the movement is accelerating, which tells you that the universe itself is expanding. That is why the galaxies are receding further and further away from us. And the further you go, the faster they are moving away from us. Right? So uh, Edwin Hubble came up with a certain uh, certain value for the for what we now call the Hubble constant. Today we know it's about 70, roughly 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Whoa, that, is the, that is the value. So the first piece of the evidence is that the universe is expanding. There is unambiguous, incontrovertible evidence from observational evidence, from observations, that the universe is expanding. Distant objects are moving away from us, and the more distant a galaxy or object is, the faster it is receding from us. So the universe is expanding, and the ex expansion is accelerating the further you go away. So, now, let's say you reverse the time. If it is expanding away from us, in the past, those objects would have been much closer to us. And based on the, the speed of the expansion and all those things, if you do proper detailed calculations, you will find that if you go back about 13.7, 13.8 billion years before today, the entire universe would have been compressed into a single point. Right? It's clear. 
you just have to take the this the expansion backwards in time and you can come up with the uh, approximate time when the universe was born right so that is one thing there is no doubt about the fact that the universe is expanding and the ex expansion is accelerating secondly people so so it was clear that the, the universe would have would have started at a, as a single point or something very close to a point then uh then people understood that if everything was concentrated into a point it would have been just pure energy incredibly dense energy right and then the expansion happened which people which fred hoyle called the big bang so if such an event happened there would have been an immense amount of radiation in the past and as the ex universe expanded and cooled that primordial radiation also would have cooled down and stretched out over time it would also have been redshifted over time very clear and if that happened then that radiation would still be present in the universe today and if you know how to detect it at the appropriate wavelengths you should be able to find it so until the 1950s or so people did not quite agree with this theory this big bang theory they said it is like creationism you know the christian creation doctrine that god created the universe and all that so they are they said that the universe should be sta a steady state universe there is no god in all in science and you're trying to recreate christian theology and so on the christian theology says that the universe was born about 4000 years ago in physical cosmology the calculations were about 13 uh, came to an answer of about 13 point something billion years or whatever the uh, whatever the uh, initial calculations were so most physicists at that time did not believe in this ridiculous idea of a big bang fred hoyle even even gave it the name big bang just to make fun of it but that caught on in the media so that's why it's called the big bang theory it's not a bang it's not an explosion it's an expansion but then what happened is that this cosmic microwave background radiation was discovered by penzias and wilson i think i think so they discovered this relic radiation the leftover radiation that can only have come from this big bang event and over time we have mapped this radiation out it's very very uniform but over very large scales you find anisotropies and uh, fluctuations in the levels and all that right so you have the planck satellite then the w map satellite which has given us a very detailed map of the background the the relic radiation of the universe and so on so because we have the evidence of the expansion of, of the universe the accelerating expansion of the universe and because we have this telltale clue of the uh of the um, microwave background radiation the cmbr these and and we have lots of other data points that I, that i will not go into because of all these data points it is clear that this event actually happened so it's not about belief nobody believed it until they found the evidence you get it science is not about belief it's not about agreeing with this or agreeing with that you look at the evidence you use the tools of science the scientific method and if the evidence agrees with the theory then the theory is likely to be correct even today the 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 so called big bang theory is not perfect it doesn't explain why this happened it is only a chronological history of the universe what the big bang theory the big bang model the lambda cdm cosmological model what it does is it attempts to recreate the 
chronology, the chronological history of the universe. It is unable to explain why things happened. Why, what, what caused the Big Bang? We still don't have the answer. We are trying to figure it out. And uh, there are lots of uncertainties. The very initial moments after the Big Bang, we don't know anything about it, more or less. Yeah. The inflationary epoch, the reheating epoch, we have recreated much of it based on observational evidence. So I am very clear about this. All scientists, physicists, cosmologists are clear about this. The best theory that we have today about the origin, about the history of the universe is what we call the Big Bang Theory, right? So based on all of these things, we can actually uncover roughly what happened and possibly predict what will happen in the future, right? So that's how it is. So that is my answer to uh, the, that question. Right. The next question is by Lakshya. I read Neil deGrasse Tyson's book, which says that in wherein he says that the accelerated expansion of the universe will in 22 billion years in the future end in what's called the big rip when even atoms get ripped apart. Would this really, really happen? Okay, so the big rip. There is, There are multiple possible scenarios about the future of the universe. One is that the universe, we know it's expanding. The expansion is accelerating by something which we call dark energy. We don't quite know what it is, but we, we believe that we know something called dark energy exists. We don't know what it is. It seems to be some kind of fluid, some kind of repulsive force, whatever it is. We don't know what it is. It's there. So one scenario is that the universe will keep expanding. The acceleration will get, uh, the expansion will accelerate more and more. Eventually, the uh, observable universe will just be our galaxy and nothing else. Eventually, even that will, will fly apart. And that's called the big rip. Eventually, even the atoms, uh, atoms will be ripped apart. Even space-time itself will be ripped apart. That's called the big rip. Uh, the, another scenario is that after a certain period of expansion, the universe will start contracting and there will be a big crunch. And will it go? We will have the reverse of the Big Bang in that in that scenario. There is something called the Big Bounce model in which there will be a big crunch, then again expansion, then again a contraction. It's a cyclic process, a cyclical universe. And there are various other models as well. So whether the big rip happens or not depends on the kind, the type of dark energy we have in our universe. So uh, if the dark energy in the universe increases without limit, it would certainly overcome all the forces that hold the universe together. The big force that holds large-scale structure together is the force of gravitation which is geometrodynamics, it's the uh, general relativity, right? It's it's governed by what we call general relativity. So the time to this hypothetical big rip, how long, how far in the future could it happen? It depends on a number of character, uh, on a number of parameters. The first is the equation of state parameter, which is called W or W typically, which is the ratio between the dark energy pressure and the energy density. So if dark energy is a fluid, let's say you have a fluid, a liquid in a glass, in a vessel. So that this liquid, this fluid will have a certain pressure, it will have a certain density. If dark energy is a fluid of some kind, it will have a certain pressure and a certain energy density. The ratio of these two quantities is called the equation of state parameter, which is denoted by W. The second parameter is the Hubble constant, 
there are two possible values of the hubble constant 67.7 kilometers per second per megaparsec or 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec uh, that's the hubble tension so that's the hubble constant the third parameter is the density of all the matter in the universe which is called omega m so if you take the value of w to be minus 1.5 if you take the hubble constant to be about 70 and the density of all the matter in the universe to be about 0 0.3 then i believe you come up with a time to a future big rip to be around 22 billion years from the present day if you take a different value of w for instance which we don't quite know yet so if you take a different value you could get a different time for the big rip. If you take a value of W less than a certain uh, certain value, then you may never have a big rip and you will have a big crunch. So it depends on what values you take in this calculation. So we don't quite know yet. It is possible there could be a big rip dep depending on the values. And the values are something that we don't have a lot of clarity about as of today. So it could happen, it may not happen, we don't quite know. So I haven't read the, the book that you're referring to. He, he has a number of books, very good author, obviously. Very, uh, very famous and beloved astrophysicist, the people's astrophysicist. So yeah, it, I'm, I'm sure that he must have come up with one of these uh, calculations. And according to one of these scenarios, you could have a big rip in about 22 billion years. So what would a big rip look like? First, all the neighboring galaxies would disappear. They would go far away and uh, they would be beyond the observational range. Then even our galaxy will be pulled apart. The force of gravity will, will be defeated by the expansion of the universe. Eventually, even the solar system will, will be pulled apart. The planets will fly off. The Earth will fly off somewhere. Then eventually, uh, the atoms and molecules will all dissociate. The subatomic, the subatomic particles will fly off from the atoms and in the end stage, even space-time itself will be ripped apart. So that is what a big rip would look like. Not a nice thing, but hey, <laughs> it's too far away in the future if it ever happens. So that is about the big rip. Uh, Ashai says, how does fire cast a shadow? Yeah, fire can cast a shadow in certain scenarios. So, what is fire? Fire is what comes out from combustion. It's a lot of heat. Uh, in, in, what is inside a flame? The, the light that you see comes from the, uh, from the combustion of various particles and, and various substances. And because it is hot, it rises upwards. That's why the flame is always pointing upwards, typically, unless there is wind. And inside a flame, you have certain kinds of particulate matter, soot perhaps from a candle or the, the whatever substance has been combusted, the carbon particles or whatever it is, right? Soot is also carbon. And it goes upwards. It rises upwards because the surrounding air is cooler than the flame. Now, not all flames cast shadows. If you're in a dark room and you light a flame, it will actually give, give off light. It won't cast a shadow. So in what scenarios will you have a flame casting a shadow? One scenario is that you have a flame. Let's say you have a candle, a candlestick, a flame on the top, and you shine a very bright light from behind it towards the wall. So you have a flame here, you have a wall here, and here you have a very bright light, which is brighter than the flame itself. In that case, the flame will cast a shadow. 
because it is obstructing the path of this brighter light. So that is one scenario in which a flame could cast a shadow. There's another scenario. So a flame, like I said, it's a very hot substance. It warps the air and it ends up causing a phenomenon called optical refraction. A refraction happens when there is a boundary between two substances which, which uh, through which light passes. A thicker substance and a thinner substance, different temperatures or whatever. And it's, it's the, it's the uh, phenomenon in which you, if you put your finger in a, in a glass of water, your finger appears to be broken or bent or, or a pen or a stick or whatever. So that also happens at the interface of a hot flame and cooler air. So it kind of warps and distorts the path of light. And that also can appear to cast a shadow. It's it's an illusion. In this case, it's an illusion caused by refraction of light. So two scenarios. One in which a flame obstructs a much brighter light. And secondly, a, fray, a flame which causes refraction of light, which appears in the form of a shadow. So these are two, two scenarios I can think of right now. Okay. Okay, Saurabh says, why is there more matter than antimatter? That's uh, that's essentially an age-old mystery. So, matter, antimatter. What is antimatter? So, antimatter particles share the same mass as your regular matter particles, their matter counterparts. But these antimatter particles have qualities that are opposite. Like electric charge is a very good example. So, we have subatomic particles like the electron, like the proton, etc. Their antimatter counterparts exist. For the electron, the electron, as you know, is a negatively charged particle. Its antimatter counterpart is the positron, which has the same mass, but it has a positive charge. The proton, as you know, is a positively charged particle. Its antimatter counterpart is the antiproton, antiproton, which has the same mass, but a negative charge. The photon of light is its own antiparticle, and so on and so forth, right? So, the very early universe, right after the Big Bang, was pure energy, just pure energy. Now, we know from quantum field theory that vacuum is not quite empty. It is teeming with particle-antiparticle pairs. So, from because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that's a whole different story, but these are virtual particle-antiparticle pairs that are formed and they, 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 they recombine very rapidly. So, that's vacuum energy, right? So, in the very early universe, when you had pure energy, eventually what happened is that it gave rise to incredible amounts of particle-antiparticle pairs with, with the relation of E equal to mc squared. And these particle-antiparticle pairs would form and, and recombine and give back energy again. And if you, if you look at... Uh, See, whenever we create matter in particle accelerator, particle accelerators, we typically get, and we not typically, we always get an equal amount of matter and antimatter, right? But in the early universe, for some reason, even though all of these particle-antiparticle pairs should have recombined and just given off pure energy, what happened is that in the very early universe, approximately one particle per billion managed to survive and there was an ex excess of matter over antimatter for whatever reason we don't know what it is some unknown mechanism or law of physics or we don't know what it is caused this to happen a slight majority 
of matter as a, as compared to the antimatter that was produced we don't know why this happened we don't have the answer one of the hypothetical scenarios is that possibly our universe has an antimatter counterpart so from the big bang not one universe came out but two universes came out one with more matter one with more antimatter and today you have two parallel universes that have come out of the big bang one has pure one has matter and one has antimatter and eventually when the two recombine in the future big crunch or whatever it will all go back to pure energy that's that is one hypothesis it's not a theory it's a hypothesis because it is not testable or falsifiable so we don't quite know why there is more matter than antimatter maybe some unknown uh law of physics exists maybe some unknown mechanism caused this to happen maybe we have two universes one with matter one with antimatter we don't know this is this this is called baryon asymmetry and this is something uh, people uh, physicists are actively trying to understand why it is so as of today we don't quite have the answer hackeristic says why why do we say that heat can travel through vacuum while heat is the kinetic energy of atoms and radiation itself is just electromagnetic radiation which to be generated doesn't necessarily require heat i don't say that heat travels through vacuum i don't know who says that i'm sure people say that people say all kinds of things what travels through vacuum is radiation electromagnetic radiation like you say there's there are other forms of radiation as well there is actually something called gravitational radiation gravitational waves uh so so what we what happens let's take the case of the sun we look at the sun when the sun rises we feel hot right we feel the heat so people say that the sun is all these eight light minutes away yeah and yet from that far away it's giving us heat that's what we sense that's what we feel what really happens is that the sun gives off electromagnetic radiation in the form of photons light waves photons wave particle duality photons or light waves these photons or these light waves whatever you want to call it they carry a certain amount of energy right e equals h nu in case you know so based on the frequency of the light there is a certain amount of energy associated with it this energy this radiation travels through vacuum it's just radiation it's just bundles of energy once these photons once this radiation reaches the earth it interacts with the molecules in the atmosphere goes through that it heats up the atmosphere right because molecules absorb this energy they vibrate and they give off give off something that we perceive as heat similarly much of this radiation makes its way through the atmosphere and it's incident on our body on our skin on rocks on vegetation etc and all of these atoms and molecules absorb the energy give it off in certain wavelengths and also give off infrared radiation that we perceive as right as as light so that is how the process roughly roughly i'm giving you a very rough <laughs> outline of what happens yeah but that's how it is so it's not heat that's traveling in the vacuum of space it is photons it is uh, electromagnetic radiation that's traveling and when it reaches the planet earth and it reaches up us that's when it interacts with the atmosphere and all the substances on the planet and gives off what we call heat
Okay, Karan says, what was the purpose of digging the Kola super deep bore hole? So the Kola super deep bore hole is something that was dug in the 20th century in the USSR. A very deep uh, borehole, a very deep uh, hole in the surface of the earth. I think it reached a depth of more than 12 kilometers. And it's uh, the deepest hole that's ever been dug anywhere in the world. Right? What is the purpose? To figure out what the earth's crust is like and what properties it has as we go further deep inside. Find out to find out what what's inside, what what how it is inside. Curiosity, scientific curiosity, and of course it will have certain applications. So uh, they found certain interesting uh, phenomena as we, as, they, as they went deeper. As you go deeper, the 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 temperature increases. As you know, deep below the Earth's surface and mantle, you have a magma layer which is all molten rock. So as you go deeper into the Earth's uh, crust. As you go deeper below the Earth's surface, the temperature increases. It gets hotter and hotter. So I think around uh, around a depth of 10 or 12 kilometers, the temperature was, I think, more than 200 degrees Celsius, possibly. Something like that. Look it up if you want. So that's one thing they found. They also found lots of hydrogen in there, hydrogen gas. They also found that the rock doesn't quite behave from a stray, from the exactly the way it was predicted. There's a different kind of uh, um, physics of the rock, metamorphic rock or whatever. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, at those temperatures and pressures, the rock be- behaves like a plastic at a certain depth. And that made it impossible to drill further. So they found a number of interesting things. And it, it helped us understand the geology and the physics of the Earth's crust the earth's uh, crust more better yeah so yeah so we found some interesting uh, data from this experiment and eventually i think uh, the project ran out of funding and that's why it was stopped so the purpose to dig this borehole was to understand our planet better and that's certainly what happened avinash says how did life evolve from non living matter and Swapnil says, can you please explain the Miller-Urey experiment which gave rise to the field of prebiotic chemistry? Okay, so these two questions are interrelated. It's about life. It's called abiogenesis, the chemical origin of life, the emergence of life possibly from non-living matter, right? So this experiment was done in the US uh, in the 1950s. Two guys, Miller and Urey, I believe. So what they were doing, they were testing the possible chemical origin of life. So we know that the earth formed about four and a half billion years before today, roughly. And it was a very different place at that time. It was a very hot ball of extremely hot molten rock and all. There was a lot of lot of volcanism. The composition of the atmosphere was, was very different from what it is today. There was a lot of lightning and so on and so forth. So they tried to recreate that environment in this experimental apparatus, right? So what they did was um, they took a flask with methane, CH4, ammonia, NH3, and hydrogen, which is H2, and a different flask with water, which is H2O. They they, they interlinked the two, and they heated the water to create vapor, steam, and they also had a spark plug in there, which would create electrical sparks all the time 
to to recreate the lightning scenario of the early Earth, and they let this run for a certain period of time. And what they found is that a number of amino acids were formed from this procedure. I don't know how long the experiment ran, maybe I don't know a week or so. I'm not sure. Look it up. It it ran for a certain amount of time, and these very simple ingredients that was that they started off with eventually formed a number of amino acids. Amino acids. So these are organic compounds that are, that, are the, that are the building block of life. Amino acids give rise to proteins. Proteins is what we have in our in our body. It's the foundation of all life on the planet. So I think what they found at the time was five or so amino acids. But later on, many decades later, when it was reanalyzed, they found well over 20 different amino acids. So that's what the uh, experiment was. I'm sure we can look it up and uh, let me see what the apparatus looks like. Uh, Miller Urey experiment. Let me um, share the screen. So, what did this apparatus look like? Yeah, so this is the experimental apparatus that they had. There is one flask with water, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen, and a different place a different flask which is connected to this which has boiling water on a heat source it's giving off uh, water vapor and there is an, uh, an arrangement for creating an electrical spark and you run this for a certain amount of time and then what you get is all of these amino acids that that emerge out of this experiment so that in brief is the miller yuri experiment and uh, yeah that is one potential way in which life or or the or the building blocks of life could have emerged in the very early earth this is abiogenesis prebiotic chemistry and so on so that is possibly one scenario in which life evolved from non living matter could this if you if you keep it going could it give rise to dna molecules we don't know i don't think anybody's been able to uh to to uh, successfully induce the creation of DNA or RNA molecules in such an experiment. So that is one mystery because all life on earth, it does come off, come out of these building blocks, amino acids, etc. But all life on earth, whether it is the most complex organisms like human beings and apes and whales and all that, or whether it is the dinosaurs, the lizards, or even if you go down to the microscopic level, bacteria, viruses, whatever you have, all life on earth has DNA. Right. So where did this where did this DNA come from? That's the main big real question. So there is this uh, panspermia theory which says that DNA came from outer space, because when we when we analyze various uh, meteorite samples, rocks that have fallen from the sky in the form of meteorites, we often find signatures of life on these meteorites. You know, organic compounds. Maybe even I'm not sure if they found amino acids, but Possibly, yeah. So we know that uh, there is a lot of water on various comets. We know that there are organic compounds in these comets and asteroids. It is possible that something else may also be have been there in the past. Who knows? So there is one theory, but there is no evidence for this theory, the, the panspermia, panspermia theory, that life came from outer space. But it is a possibility. So we don't quite know, as of today, we don't quite have the answers. How did life evolve from non-living matter? One possible answer is the Miller-Urey experiment, but it doesn't answer the question of the DNA. Where did DNA come from? Where did that emerge from? 
So as of today, we have more questions than answers, but it's good. It means there is a lot of scope for further research and progress. Alpha Beta says, do, uh, do satellites have a specific lifetime and on what factors does that depend? What causes satellites to hit the Earth? They are orbiting around the Earth without any fuel, getting solar energy. Okay. Uh, why? Okay. Do satellite have? Do satellites have a specific lifetime? Yes. It depends on a number of factors. First of all, uh, the components of the satellite, the 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 machinery of the satellite. How long will it last? Everything degrades in vacuum in space. Even on Earth, any machine won't last forever. After a certain time, the components will wear out and will stop functioning. So there is a certain uh, amount of time anything can, can work and then it stops working. Let's say you have a satellite with a fuel source. Uh, that fuel source will have a finite lifetime after which the electricity will stop flowing. Sometimes some satellites don't have any fuel source, energy source, they have solar panels. Even those solar panels over, over a few years will slowly degrade. The amount of uh, energy they will be able to give the satellite will slowly decrease over time. Eventually, over that, even that ends and the satellite ceases to function the way it's designed to function. That is one factor. So if you have a satellite that's, let's say, at a geostationary orbit, 36,000 or so kilometers above the surface of the planet, then that satellite will have a finite lifetime after which it will not last because of these factors which I just outlined. There is another uh factor that limits the lifetime of satellites. When you have satellites in low Earth orbit, let's say 200 kilometers above the surface, let's say 300 kilometers above the surface, these satellites will, uh, will experience something called atmospheric drag. So technically, the atmosphere ends at 100 kilometers above the surface of the planet. That's technically, because actually it doesn't quite end there. The atmosphere just goes on and on for a very long, for a very, until it becomes so diffused, you can't really differentiate the atmosphere from outer space. But it, it doesn't abruptly end at 100 kilometers above the surface. So even if, you, if, if a satellite is 200 kilometers above the Earth's surface, it will experience collisions with atmosphere molecules, air molecules. The collisions will be very rare, very infrequent, but they will be there. So this gives rise to something called atmospheric drag, which slowly over the days, weeks, months, years, slows down the uh, the the velocity, slows down the speed at which the satellite is orbiting the Earth. And because of that, the altitude of the, of the satellite comes down slowly, slowly, slowly. And the further and the closer it comes to the surface of the Earth, the higher is the atmospheric drag. So it's... Uh, it's a self-reinforcing phenomenon. And once the satellite is low enough and the atmospheric drag is high enough, the satellite will break apart and burn up in the atmosphere. So some satellites have a rocket engine, small rocket engine, which will periodically be used to boost the orbit of the satellite. But even that rocket fuel will eventually end, will get over, right? So these are the factors that limit the lifetime of a satellite. If it's a low Earth orbit satellite, it will eventually uh, end up re-entering the atmosphere and burning up. Hopefully not hitting the planet. So that's what happens. They just says, how many years will it take for us to mine, to mine other planets? How will it change our world as raw materials for industry will become cheaper? So the first question is, 
how long will it take for us to reach another planet? That's the first question. And we are not talking about the moon or asteroids, we're talking about other planets. So the only other planet that is a viable candidate for us to go to as of today in the 21st century is Mars. It's our closest neighbor. It takes between nine months to, a f- to slightly more than a year, depending on the time of the year, to reach there if you have a good enough rocket. And uh, so when do we expect human beings to reach there? Right now, we have a few robots on the planet. NASA has a couple of robots, at least one robot, as a, if I can recall, which is currently active and operational. There's a small uh, helicopter-like drone also that's active on the planet right now. And there are a few satellites, robot satellites in orbit, including our own Mangalyan, which is still operational. So as of today, we are in a position to send robots to the planet planet with great difficulty. These robots are very rudimentary machines. They are not in a condition. They are not capable of mining the planet. It is expected that humans, the first human trips to Mars will begin in the 2030s, most likely. And possibly it will be SpaceX or NASA that will be at the forefront of that. We already have the technology for that, but it is still very risky. We could possibly send humans there or maybe they could die on the way. Or maybe we could not be able to bring them back. So we need a little more technological progress. We need to make this entire process as as low risk as possible because human lives are precious. So most likely in the 2030s, human beings will reach Mars. And if there's a big enough rocket rocket like the SpaceX, uh, the biggest one they have, you could transport all kinds of machinery there, including mining machinery. So at the earliest, within the next 20 years, you could have the first attempts by humans to, to do some kind of mining on Mars. Typically, it will begin with trying to uh, trying to chemically alter the soil in order to produce food there or something and uh, and possibly produce oxygen and uh, water from the soil, from the soil of Mars. It will begin like that, but eventually we will start drilling deep into the into the crust of the of the, uh, of the planet and possibly extract minerals, metals or whatever else is of value. So the first human habitation will most likely happen within the next 20 years. And another 10, 20, 30 years, and you could have some mining activities happening on that planet as as the human settlement possibly grows there, right? So possibly, possibly, hypothetically, in the next 50 years, you would have some mining activity on Mars. But what would that mining activity be done for? It would be done in order to create a proper sustainable habitat on that planet. Let's say you want to build a larger Mars base for permanent human settlement. You would need materials. You would try and extract those materials out of the planet itself instead of transporting them all the way from Earth. Because it takes a lot of energy to to, to transport transport even one kilo of, of any material from Earth to Mars. So the first attempts at mining would be in order to create a more sustainable living environment right there. Not for bringing materials back to Earth. So I think the first 100 or so years, 200 years possibly, whatever mining happens on Mars would be for for creating and expanding a human settlement, not for bringing anything back to Earth. Eventually, possibly, perhaps, you may have some materials which are valuable on Earth, which could be transported from Mars to Earth, maybe from some asteroids to Earth, possibly. 
but there will be a very high cost for the transportation to happen so i am not sure if it will really change our world and transform our raw, raw materials industry eventually if things go well you could have permanent human settlements on mars and industries which possibly target certain asteroids so that's thing, that sort of thing could happen in the next 2 300 years so that's how i envisage this as going initially the human settlement on mars will be a very small scale thing it will be tough for them to survive and they will try to expand that settlement and make it more uh, future proof so that's how i see it going human settlements will happen over the next 30 to 100 years and mining will proceed from beyond that at any sustainable level that's how i see it let's see okay flying raven says some time ago i heard about a discovery of a white hole what's a white hole what are the properties of a white hole a white hole is just like a black hole but it's like a time reversed black hole so in the in a black hole you have an event horizon and whatever crosses the event horizon is gone forever essentially from a classical general relativity perspective so in a black hole everything goes inwards typically in a white hole it's like you have the time reversal of a black hole everything comes out of a white white hole nothing can ever go in a white hole also has an event horizon and that is the point at which nothing can cross into the white hole so a white hole would have similar gravitational properties like a black hole but from time to time it would throw out material from within itself and possibly it could get smaller possibly right so there are certain solutions of the einstein equations that give you white hole solutions you know white holes so that's what a white hole is we have never ever discovered when i'm not sure where you heard about the discovery of a white hole but yeah <coughs> we don't know if you have ever discovered one if there is a white hole somewhere it it would look from far away just like a black hole there are certain black holes that are very massive supermassive black holes most galaxies have a supermassive black hole at their center some of these are active galactic nuclei which give off this massive giant jets of radiation and material right because of the accretion disk that is around the black hole so maybe this could be white holes that are giving off these jets and material coming out of that so we can't quite tell from far away whether what we are seeing is a white hole or a black hole from a, from afar it looks more or less the same if it's an isolated white hole we could be able to tell perhaps that it's a white hole and not a black hole but we are so far away and these objects are typically found at the center of galaxies which are at enormous distances away from here millions of light years from here so we can't quite tell but from the theoretical perspective from the perspective of general relativity white holes should exist could exist but we have never discovered one but to to make it very simple a white hole is like a time reversed black hole in a black hole everything goes inside in a white hole everything goes outside both have an event horizon which is the boundary of no return so that is what a white hole is in very very brief okay sauraj says why is isro not making reusable rockets why do we have such tiny rockets with very little payload capacity when will isro come out of its space taxi program it's a is it a money problem or something else can we wait till the time india reaches 10 trillion dollars of its gdp uh don't you think we'll be left if we wait we'll be left behind in the space race i think we need to start taking isro forward 
For the longest time, we have a couple of rockets, the GSLV and the PSLV. The PSLV is the workhorse, which is actually a rocket with a very small payload capacity. It only reaches polar orbits. The, G, the, the GSLV is designed to reach uh, geostationary orbits, 36,000 or so kilometers above the surface. But even that is not a very powerful rocket. It's the most powerful one we have. It's not very powerful when we compare it with other space programs and other rockets that other countries have. So why are we not taking it forward? Our rocket engineers, we call them rocket scientists, are very much capable of building more powerful rockets. Very easy. We have the technology to, to do that. We have the know-how for doing that. It's all about the funding, the finances. You get a higher budget, and if you get the go-ahead from the whoever is in the decision-making capability, then this will happen. It, it can happen very rapidly. We could have a way more powerful rocket in the next five or ten years if we give the go-ahead and we give the right amount of money. And why are we not making reusable rockets? I don't understand why. SpaceX has been doing it for like close to a decade now, if not more. If a private company can do it, why can't ISRO do it with the government support and all that? So it's all about uh, political will, I would say. So I'm not sure why it's not happening. I would like to see ISRO go ahead of its competitors. We have the money. Why don't we fund ISRO and give the scientists the go-ahead to explore everything that everybody else is doing and go ahead of the, of the competitors? We have the ability. We have the ability to go ahead of, of China, of Japan, even SpaceX in the next 10, 20 years, if the funding is, a, is made available and if the scientists are given the right directions and, and the permission to go ahead. So I don't know why it's not happening. I would like to see it happen. I've been saying, saying this for a very long time. If we wait for 20 years, we'll be, we'll be, we will be left a long way behind our competitors. So I hope something is done about this. Naman says, what is relativistic speed? When two particles of a certain mass are moving at, let's say, 99.99% the speed of light, and t parallel to each other, which means in this direction, coming towards each other, the relative speed shall be more than the speed of light. Are you sure? So the question is, how does relativistic speed justify Einstein's special theory of relativity? You need to study Einstein's special theory of relativity. Uh, Lorentz transformations, relativistic velocity, addition, all that. And you will see it's not the case. Even if two particles are moving at the speed of light, if two photons are moving towards each other with, at the speed of light, so this guy is at the speed of light, this guy is at the speed of light. And if I'm sitting here, I will see the other guy coming to me, not at twice the speed of light, but only at the speed of light. That's how velocity addition happens in um, special relativity. So let me show you how this works. I... Let me demonstrate what it is. Let me share my screen. One second. Give me a second. And I will actually try and demonstrate this. So to understand this, you, I cannot explain to you in a, explain this to you in a, in a way that makes sense intuitively. Relativity doesn't make intuitive sense. Quantum mechanics doesn't make sense from an intuitive perspective. So let's talk about the velocity addition. So this is the formula that governs velocity addition. We are applying the Lorentz transformations to the velocities, right? So you have something that's coming in one direction at 0.8 times the speed of light. And the other one is coming at 0.9 times the speed of light. And then yet when you add it up, it doesn't add up to 1.6 times the speed of light. 
so let's go to basic application okay so relativistic relative velocity there is va and vb in two different directions let's say you are saying that va is 0.99 times the speed of light i am entering that and vb in the opposite direction is minus 0.99 times the speed of light then you, what you get is 0.9999994 whatever c it doesn't add up to or 1.8 or whatever times the speed of light it does not it adds up to less than the speed of light even though both are almost at the speed of light so that's how it works you have to study the equations you have to study the theory and then you will realize it's not quite the case so uh, you can look it up the the mathematics is quite simple actually compared to the general relativity mathematics so that's how it works so to understand how these things work you have to actually study the physics study the math i can tell you but you won't believe it most likely because it doesn't make sense to you so unless you go deep into the physics and you actually study the equations and how they are constructed how they are derived only then will you understand but that's how it works the cosmic speed limit is the speed of light nothing can travel further faster than the speed of light and if you have if a particle has mass it cannot even reach the speed of light it will always be below the speed of light and there are all these relativistic effects like uh, time dilation and and so on and so forth when it comes to these phenomena okay okay let's take one more question marcus says is a plant based or vegan diet healthier than a diet that includes animal products does dairy and meat uh, cause cancer there are many controversial opi- controversial opinions among scientists floating online are there is there any reliable scientific evidence from either side what's your take on this um there seems to be very clear a uh, correlation between processed red meat between red meat high consumption of red meat and cancer the problem with these studies is that most of these studies if not all of them are sponsored by various corporations in the 1960s in the us doctors used to say that uh, doctors used to advertise their favorite brand of 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 tobacco of of cigarette camel and and so on you can see that see the ads online even today you can see that, see that on google if you do a google search so doctors and the medical industry have for the longest time in the west in the us been co-opted and paid to push out propaganda and today even today you have the meat industry hiring doctors and uh, paying them to come up with various studies which are published in medical journals scientific journals we don't quite know how accurate these studies are and how true they are it's always possible to fudge the data to cherry pick certain cases and, and ignore certain cases so we don't know there are so many opinions among scientists but what seems to be the case from my perspective is that the more vegetables you eat the healthier you are and the less meat you eat the healthier you are of course you need protein you can uh, you can consume more dairy or more legumes to get your protein you can get your full protein profile that you need for a day from a completely plant based diet that has been more or less proven now 
right? Um, the the meat industry disagrees with that. They will they will have scientists who will say that you will not get your complete protein profile, your full protein profile, only from eating legumes and and vegetable and plant products. You need some meat or dairy. Typically, meat they'll they'll push meat. That's not quite the case. So, from my perspective, from everything I've read and studied over the decades, my perspective is that if you minimize your intake of red meat or meat. And if you maximize the amount of plant-based food you eat, you're going to be healthy. The more plants you eat, the more plant-based food you eat, the healthier you are. And that's something I think most studies do bear up with. You know, they do show that. So my opinion, it's again an opinion. I, I have not done actual research on this. I have only read lots of research about this. So from all I've read, this is what I feel. This is what I, this is what I have concluded. You need to eat lots of plant-based food. If you are a, a meat eater, try and eat more white meat and minimize the amount of red meat that you eat. And uh, dairy would be actually better because dairy can give you all the protein you need. Uh, dairy doesn't seem to cause cancer. Red meat seems to cause cancer, right? So that's how that that's what makes sense to me from my perspective, right? Right. Okay. Let me take about five minutes of questions from the uh, from the light live chat. In case you have questions for me that you would like to ask me right now in the live chat, this is the time. I'll take a few questions. Let's. Uh, mm, okay, this is by Samhita. Uh, what is actually about the planet nine that has recently been discovered? We have not discovered planet nine yet. Pluto used to be planet nine nine now they have reclassified it as a minor planet or whatever else they call it i don't know what they call it nowadays i don't care for me i grew up considering pluto as planet nine and that's what i call it now uh, there is news about the possible existence of an unknown planet out out in the far reaches of the solar system it is possible it may even be likely how do we come up with these <laughs> these scenarios it's because we can infer the presence of a massive object at a certain distance from the sun based on the kind of orbital effect it would have on smaller planets, minor planets, etc. So there are multiple objects in the solar system that have been discovered that have very strange orbits. And that can only be caused or most likely be caused by the presence of an unknown massive and large object at a certain distance from the sun. So the this pattern that astronomers have, have observed, they've discovered lots of planets over the past 20 years that exhibit this strange orbital uh, path. So it looks like there is something out there that, is, that has caused these minor planets and other Kuiper belt objects to acquire these weird tilted, etc. Ob orbits. So there seems to be something out there, a massive planet which is currently very dark, which, which is not visible. Maybe a planet that is multiple times the size of the Earth from the mass perspective. So there could be something out there. And that's what the search is on for. Some people say there could even be a black hole orbiting the sun that we are not aware of. You know, if it's, if it's a black hole, it's dark. And if it's so far away, it's not going to do any mischief. You know, like the kind of mischief black holes cause in science fiction. No. A black hole out there in orbit around the sun could uh, maybe it's a primordial class black hole, you know, 
smaller than the sun so it doesn't have massive massive gravitational effects and it's still sitting out there so that is also a possibility so maybe our planet 9 could be a hidden black hole in our stellar backyard so it's not been discovered everyone is searching for it there is a certain amount of likelihood that it may exist and let's see what time tells us it would be interesting it would be, it would be fascinating to discover a large planet hidden somewhere far away from the sun but it's orbiting the sun that would be fascinating so let's see okay any other questions recommend your favorite favorite near accurate sci-fi movies uh, the last one i saw which was good was interstellar that was near accurate uh the way the black hole the supermassive black hole was depicted made sense from a physics perspective the time dilation that is that is uh, experienced by the by the hero also made sense from a physics perspective the last part of the movie in which he goes into a black hole and encounters a tesseract or whatever that was all hypothetical but apart from it overall it was a very good movie uh, so that's one movie that I, that i liked a lot there's another movie called arrival which is nonsense some people say arrival is so good i found it <laughs> ridiculous uh yeah so favorite near accurate sci-fi movies one is uh, like i said interstellar there's another one called solaris there is one called um, what is it called it's based off a novel by arthur c clarke 2001 a space odyssey which is about uh, a sentient computer hal 2000 i believe it was called there's lots um there's lots maybe i'll make a video about movie recommendations how about that okay let's uh, see something else maybe one or two more questions somebody is asking question about history today is the day of science <laughs> um okay i think it, how do scientists say that the universe is expanding because of observational evidence you look at a galaxy and so first of all we have to decide, decide how far a galaxy is from us let's say you discover a galaxy and you don't know how far it is so you take advantage of certain things like standard candles type 1a supernova in which we can actually determine the distance from us between us and them between us and that place so there are certain ways of discovering how far a galaxy is so then so first we establish the distance secondly we look at the spectra you know the light spectra that come from the galaxy and there are certain spectral lines that we know what are the wavelengths we look for those spectral lines in a spectrograph spectrometer whatever and then we will find invariably in all galaxies apart from the andromeda galaxy we will find that these spectral lines are shifted towards the red end of the spectrum it's called gravitational it's called redshift redshift happens when the light source is moving far moving away from you it's the relativistic doppler effect so you find that all galaxies are redshifted and the further a galaxy away is away from us the more redshifted it is which tells you that not only is the universe expanding but the expansion is accelerating so we have determined that the universe is expanding based on observational evidence hope that makes sense shall i take one more question how to do independent research in mathematics or in theoretical physics you have to become really proficient in the subject if you can do that 
then you can do actual research. The first thing in learning physics is to become really, really, really proficient in math. The mathematical methods that underlie physics, all your basic math, you know, calculus, differential equations, integral calculus, differential calculus, linear algebra, matrices, blah, 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 all that stuff. Pick up any textbook of um, uh, the mathematical methods of physics, Mary Bose is one uh, and so on. I may have a few here. And you need to get, get really proficient at that. You need to spend hundreds of hours solving math problems. There's no shortcut to it. Minimum time period, five years. Dedicated hard work. You do that, you'll become really good at math. If you are really good at math, physics is the easiest thing in the world. Physics is all math. Physics makes a lot of sense, all entire sense, once you get the math down. You do that, you can do research. Of course, you will have to study the various theories. Quantum quantum mechanics, even though you may know the math, is, is a big shock to you. You know, the first time you encounter it. And especially when you start going deeper into it. So you need to get into quantum physics, quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, quantum electrodynamics, chromodynamics. You need to also study relativity if that's what you're into. So it takes a lot of time to get there. But once you are proficient enough, you can do your own research. You don't need to be part of any university or whatever else. So that is the, the brief guide or roadmap, which is not brief. And it certainly is not easy. That's how we do it. All right, gentlemen, all right, ladies, all right, friends, all right, my dear earthlings. I am done for today. Thank you very much for all the wonderful questions. I'm getting lots more, but I'm going to have to stop it here for today. We'll do it again next week. We will continue these science episodes as well. This is what interests me the most. This is my core competence. And I really enjoy talking about science. So we will do this next week again. And we'll keep on doing it. Thank you very much. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.